Greetings in Jesus' name this morning. I have been blessed so far by the service. Actually, I must confess that when Brad got up here at first, I got a little worried. Because and he got up and he stood up here and his voice trembled a little bit. And I thought, oh, I, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll be, you know, how it is when you get up and share. And But you did well. <laughs> you overcame that initial fear. Or I don't know if you had it or not. It just sounded like it. And I was worrying about that because I know how it feels. I think many of us do. But I was blessed, blessed by the children's lesson. I think that is a lesson for us adults. In fact, it's up to us adults to teach our children the very thing that was taught there. This morning, I am going to do something a little different. I don't know. I think I might have done it before already, but uh, it's somewhat of a new style of preaching verse by verse out of an Old Testament book, and that's not something I have done very often, if I ever. And it is out of Ruth. My God, your God shall be my God. The title. Let's pray. Let's just have a little word of prayer before we go in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are the almighty God who knows the future and is in full control. There is not a worry we need to have. There is not a care that we can't take to you. There's not a pain. There's not a hurt. There's not a trial that we can't take to you, and you will understand it. And Lord, your promises, your power, your attributes, everything is way greater than anything we face. I thank you, Lord, and I pray, Lord, as we uh, go through and look into your word this morning, that you would speak to us your plan and your purpose for each one of us in our lives. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get into that, I do have one thought I would like to buy you. Does anyone know what the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year is? The Word of the Year is the word last year, which they choose every year a word that they feel encapsulates the spirit of the times. Does anybody know what the last year's word is, what they just chose here a couple of weeks ago? Okay, I saw it just, it was interesting, so I just thought I'd mention it here at the beginning. It is the word post-truth. Post-truth. And it gives this definition, it's an adjective, post-truth, as relating to or donating circumstances in which objective facts are less influential 
in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal beliefs. What it means is truth is not really important anymore as as what the power of persuasion is the most important thing. That's our error. What is considered true is the power of the emotion and persuasion. And so exactly what is a post-truth culture? Because they chose this word because it defines the spirit of our age. So what does this mean in our age? What is actually happening? Well, it is a culture where truth is no longer an objective reality. It becomes subjective. It's what is true for me. It's my beliefs, it's my opinion, that's a determiner of truth. So that is a determiner of truth. There is no truth that is true for everybody. Okay. Now, how that plays out is this way. When you make a statement like homosexuality is wrong, that is an objective truth that we believe in, just using one example. You could put many others in there. But that's an example because a hot button issue. What someone who is in the spirit of the age will hear, they won't hear homosexuality is wrong. They will hear, I hate gays. That's what they hear. Why do they hear that? Because in their mind, there is no objective truth. So you're actually not making an objective truth claim. You are actually stating your opinion. If you're stating your opinion that homosexuality is wrong, that means you hate them. It's, it can't be avoided because they, they're, you are talking in a definition that they don't have in their mind. Okay? That's the spirit of the age. Does it make sense? So, for me to say that it is wrong what you are doing or believe in, and is actually in my attempt to oppress you because it's one belief over another belief. They're all objective. So, let me say, Christianity is grounded in objective truth, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he wasn't expressing a personal opinion. He was expressing the absolute truth. It's a fundamental reality that doesn't change from person to person. So um, there's one thing, uh, one thing that, one statement I didn't make here is about a post-truth culture. All, in a post-truth culture, all statements of what might be called traditional or conservative moral judgment is just well-disguised efforts at oppression. That is the um, how they interpret that. So I just thought that was interesting, that that is the spirit of our age. Now, that's been building. It's been building for many years. 
but it has arrived. That is the culture we live in. But this morning, I would like to have a message out of the book of Ruth. And maybe some of you are there. There's a little story in the Bible by the name of Ruth. And it's an impressive story. Last evening we heard, for you that were there, that we heard that Solomon wrote Proverbs at 1000 B.C. And it's very important. The 1004 B.C. is when the temple was uh, dedicated. And within four years' time he wrote Proverbs. This was actually written... 150 years before that, so maybe 1150, more, way more than 3,000 years ago, there was, there were real people living in real circumstances, and we just have, right out of history, it's, we have people with real names. They're named. You know, sometimes you have stories and you have the unnamed prophet. This prophet came up to the king and he cursed the king because of what he was doing and his arm withered up and we don't even know what his name is. This is a story where you know every character's name. It's a story where you hear conversation, you have tears, you have tragedy and you have sorrows and you have decisions made and you have consequences and you have happy endings. It's a story. It's a beautiful story. It's an amazing glimpse of a social situation in a small town more than 3,000 years ago. I tell my children occasionally that even if the Bible would not be inspired, it wouldn't be God's word, it is an amazing book. Think of Esther. That book of Esther, and the irony is that in that book, and here comes Haman walking into the king early one morning, and he wants to hang Mordecai, and he is thinking um, of his glorious future and all his things. And just before he can speak, the king asked, hey, what can I do for somebody I'd like to honor? And he said, well, that must be me. So he said, well, do this and this and this and this and get the king's most noble man to to run before it with on a horse. And he said, yeah, go do that to Mordecai, the very one he was going to kill. And the irony of that, the book of Esther does not contain the word God. No mention of God. That's unique. But the fingerprints of God are over, all over that book in his care and preservation of his people. And so it's in Ruth. It's history of real people making real decisions that affected their real lives just like today. So let's read first five verses right here. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth, and they dwelt there about ten years. And Malan and Chilion died also, both of them. 
and the women were left of her, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. This was in the days that the judges ruled. This book of Ruth is actually just taking the book of Judges, that period of about 400 years when the judges ruled, is taking a slot of time out of there and giving a social situation. I want you to turn one page back to Judges 21 and the last verse. It's an interesting verse, which is somewhat of a preliminary to Ruth. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's an introduction to this book of Ruth. It was in those days when Israel was experiencing cycle after cycle. They, had, they, had, uh, they, they fell away from God. God oppressed them somehow. And after in their oppression, they cried out to God. God raised the deliverer and they... Uh, and they, they came back to God, and they had an period of peace, and then the cycle continues. <clears throat> the people served the Lord for a time, and they experienced peace. Then they began to forsake the Lord, and the same thing happened. When I was a boy, I read Bible stories. I don't know exactly how much of the Bible I read as a young boy. I probably heard it in church. And I thought, that is really strange. How can a people group just leave God I mean in my mind we went to church every Sunday uh, we got to church generations and generations we've never left God that was my impression impression as a young boy but you can leave God in many more ways than that but uh, they left God they worshipped idols and um, anyhow during this time there was a famine in the land. Now, the writer, which we don't know who he is, it could have been Samuel or it could have been someone else, it does not tell us what caused the famine. Was it one of the many times when the enemies came in and they you know, took the crops and things and there was nothing left for the people to eat in and, and that kind of thing? Was that one of those times or was it just the... Uh, Rains fail and uh, there weren't any crops. We don't know. We're left to guess. But the famine apparently did not extend across the Dead Sea to the land of Moab. It wasn't far. Um, I think I heard maybe only 15 miles as the crow flies. I'm not sure about that. I didn't check that. Maybe someone here knows. It wasn't very far to Moab. They would have had to go around the, the Dead Sea. Did I say Red Sea, the Dead Sea? So, there was this drought. So one man, Elimelech, took his family out of the famine to greener pastures in a neighboring country. They were living in the promised land. That's where they were living at. Bethlehem was in Judah. That's the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. But right now, the land was not flowing with milk and honey. So, things were no longer fruitful. Times were hard. Finances were failing. And people were starving. 
So they left and went to Moab. Who was Moab? The Moabites. Moab, the Moabites and and Ammon, the children of Ammonites, were descendants of the two daughters of Lot that were sired by their own father. Who were they? Well, they were not part of the covenant community, and they worshipped idols. Question I have for you. Was it wrong for Elimelech to take his family to the land of Moab during these hard times? What do you think? Yes, no, maybe so. guess you're looking at me for the answer, right? <laughs> Actually, I don't know if I have a clear answer to that. I don't have a clear answer for that. Was it wrong for Abram to go down to Egypt during a period of famine? And we don't have a clear condemnation of that. It's In a sense, it was sense like it was not a good thing, but it was not forbidden. It's, that's a sense I get from it. Uh, maybe you have better ideas than that. The main problem was the results of the outcomes of those decisions. It's the main problem. When Abram, when Abram went down to Egypt, he got a lot of wealth down there. And one of the things he got in Egypt was female servants. He probably got Hagar down there in Egypt. Was there any potential problems there? Now, Abram and Sarah's problem was a lack of faith. That was their problem. When, when Abram and Sarah, when Sarah said, why don't you take Hagar and have a child by her? They were failing in faith. That was the problem. But some bad decisions in the past tended to grease the opportunity for that failure to have a certain outcome. I've written down here, some bad decisions in the past tend to grease the path for more disastrous decisions in the future. So in their period of faltering faith, a situation presented itself that might not have been there if Abram had not gone to Egypt. And their failure included the consequences of a bad former decision. Now, praise God. God took that failure, he overruled it, and all things work together for good for them that love God. And he loved God, and it worked out for good. God made sure it happened. But a lot of trouble came with it. Trouble that extended in their family, the strife. That decision goes to this day, (laughs) that bad decision. Consequences and the effects of bad decisions don't just go away. So, let's change that from Abram to here. Was it wrong for uh, Elimelech to go to Moab? Well, okay. Elimelech, it says he went to sojourn there. 
that means he was going to go only for a visit, only for a time, only till things get better at home. That was that's his intention. Not planning to stay permanently, just till things get better. Things don't always go as planned. In verse three, it says that Elimelech died. Now we have the leader, the one who likely initiated the move, was gone. Elimelech had made a decision to leave the promised land because of the pressure of the circumstances and conditions that caused them to leave their assigned home. Judah, the promised land, let's say it this way, the will of God, that place of blessing is not necessarily always an easy place. It's not always a place of physical abundance or Happiness, not always a place of happiness. Elimelech was afraid his family would fall victim to this famine. So he took what he thought was an easier way out, which decision that gave his family food. He provided food for his family, but it affected them majorly in life. Because of the pressures he faced, he took his family to a Gentile country, to a heathen environment. But since it was just a sojourn there, just for a short time, just till things improve, it probably could be rationalized. But they stayed there for 10 years. Now, let me see. Rarely is compromise a short-term solution. And we need to hear this. The intent to go only a little way or for a little while is very attractive. But the mindset that wants to choose the easier path, that mindset, that heart that looks for a way around the cross that looks for some way that way that you have to go, the way that God is calling to you to go, the heart that wants to go around it is the very heart that will also prevent you from coming back. Because it's the very mindset um, I had it. I, I read it somewhere. I don't have it written down. I don't think. But the whole mindset, when we when we choose a certain path, it tends to set a trend for life. For someone who's committed to God and then goes through the cross and maintains that faith in God, that person sets a trend for his life. If he continues in faith. The person that tries to take easy roads and tries to avoid the cross and whatever it is in his life sets a pattern also for his life. So we do have the freedom to choose our path, but we don't have the freedom to determine the results of our decisions. We do not have the freedom to determine the results. So Elimelech dies and they are far from home. 
Now we have a single mother with her mostly grown sons. And one compromise almost always results to another. So what do they do? Well, verse 4 says, And they took them wives of the women of Moab. Now, what do you think of this? Next question. Is it wrong for an Israelite young man to marry a Moabite woman? Is that right or wrong? That's wrong. That's wrong. When God gave the Israelites their inheritance under Moses, he told them clearly they would, they would not get the land of the Moabites. The land of the Moabites, well, I'll read it here. Deuteronomy 2, 9 says, And the Lord said to me, Distress not the Moabites, neither contend with them in battle, for I will not give thee of their land for a possession, because I have given R unto the children of Lot for a possession. So, God did not destroy the Moabites. They were not part of those Canaanite people that we were supposed to destroy. They were relatives. And so the question was, is it still okay to intermarry? And we heard the answer, no. Well, what were the Moabites part of God's chosen people? And the answer is no. Were they part of the covenant community? And the answer is no. What for God did they worship? Did they worship the true God? And the answer is no. Uh, Deuteronomy 23.3 and a couple verses there. I'll read them. This is where right after the after the Ten Commandments were given and then there were the civil laws given to the covenant community and they have a few verses that say this. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they met you not with bread and water in the way when ye came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse thee. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. Thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all their days. The Moabites tried to destroy Israel. They were enemies. And it goes into marriage, uh, Nehemiah 13. This is when Nehemiah was doing the reform there when they came back from captivity. And I'd like to read a few verses there, 23 to 25. In those days also saw I, this was Nehemiah speaking, I, Jews that had married wives, of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spoke half the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their son, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. So what do you think? Was it wrong for Elimelech to go to Moab? Not a direct condemnation that we know of. We sort of have the idea, probably not. Probably not the best decisions. But the result of that decision to move is what made the most disastrous decision. They stayed there and they married 
heathen wives, and that was directly in disobedience to God. But those boys were set up for it. They were made vulnerable by the decisions of their father. Not unlike Lot, when he pitched his tent towards Sodom. Was it wrong for Lot to pitch his tent towards Sodom? No. But the consequences were completely disastrous. You know, for us parents, we really need to be careful what decisions we make because they will affect our children in a vast way. That's for all of us. Ruth 1.5, And Malan and Chilion died also, both of them, and the women were left of their two sons. Here we have Naomi in a terrible state. She had the grief of her loss of her husband, the grief of the loss of her sons. She probably had pretty, I would say she probably had guilt. She lost her support and her provision. And as a widow, she faced, uh, would you worry maybe if you'd be a widow in this situation in a foreign land? Is it okay to worry there? She faced at least significant hardship and maybe um, severe poverty in that culture. All her old familiar relationships were gone, and she was left destitute. There had been compromise been taken ten years before. There was a compromise made that promised deliverance. But compromise never delivers deliverance. Not long term. Moab had bread. Moab seemed like a place of escape. But Moab became a land of death for them. It had become a land of death. Okay, Ruth chapter 1 verse 6. Then she arose. Is what verse 6 starts with. And I can't help but see the parallel between then she arose and the prodigal son that says, and when he came to himself. When he came to himself, he began to think and he said, how many hired servants of my father have plenty to eat and I'm here destitute. And we know that the prodigal son returned and he had a full blessing. Then she arose. See, there is the turning point in this chapter. You know the story of Ruth is an incredible happy ending. You all who know the story. It it ends really, really, really well. But it does not start well. But here is a key turning point in this whole book. Then she arose. And why is that? Well, 
when, like the prodigal son, when he came to himself, went back to his father, he got the blessing. God is like that. If we depart from God and we experience whatever God deals out to us, but when we come to ourselves, there is a turning point. And we, there is always a path back. It's like God. God does give the second chance. But the deliverance must start with, but when he came to himself. And it must start with, and then she arose. And I have to ask this question. How many other people and families had compromised like they did here? And did not arise. We don't know that. But you can imagine. There's probably a significant number. And maybe multitudes. That. That are compromised. And never came back. But there are some. Severely chastened by God. Begin to consider. What they left behind there. And begin to contemplate coming back. Compromise has led to sorrow and regret, and a deep desire arises to somehow come back and regain or go back to what was thrown away in the past, what was lost. There's only shreds remaining of what we have, only shreds, but there's a desire to go back. So Naomi's testimony, and we'll read it later, was, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. The easy way had become vastly harder. Compromise to spiritual principle never gets us ahead. It always costs in the end. So, verse 6, And she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. She had heard that the Lord had visited his people. Question, where did the Lord visit his people? Was it in Moab? Where did the Lord visit his people? Anybody? Where were his people? They weren't in Moab, were they? They were back. He visited his people where they were supposed to be, back in their own land. And the thing we can learn from that is patience under pressure is the true alternative to compromise. Being and staying in God's will is not always the happiest state. The people of Judah... The ones who stayed back had endured much. I am sure they suffered a lot. But there came a time when God visited them. He visited them with bread. He visited them with peace. And Naomi, after her chastisement, after her regret and sorrow, desires to go back to God and his people. But it wasn't a return of victory. It was a return of sorrow. Verse 7, Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house, 
And the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. One can't hardly be helped but be moved by this mixture of love and sorrow. This pain and regret of wishing things were different. But the harsh reality is still there. Naomi was sorrowing on all fronts. She was sorrowing. There's hardly any. There was only one glimmer of hope. Go back. That was her only hope. And even there, it looked really dark. And she sees no future for her daughters-in-law. Her character shows through here in this way is that she wanted her daughters-in-law to experience a better life. And she assumed or uh, thought that they would be better off where they're at. So you just stay here in your land. You have potential of getting other husbands. Stay there. Her lack of character goes through when she tells them to go back to their own gods. And verse 10, And they say unto her, said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters, why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them until they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. It grieveth me much for your sake, is what Ruth said. It is hard to experience the chastening hand of God. Naomi had only years of lonely years and sorrow to look forward to. God had really chastened her. Failure was all over her life. That was hard enough, but it's even harder when the people that are closest to you are a participant of your chastising. That is harder yet. And that's why she said, it grieveth me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has been against me. And that's true today. When we experience God's chastening hand, it can be severe, but it's worse for those caught along with our failures. Our associates and our camera, uh, our uh, friends, and especially our children. And verse 14, And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clave unto her, and she said, Ruth said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back to her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Jonah was an unwilling preacher. Naomi was a very unwilling witness to the God of Israel. She tried her best to keep someone from coming home home to the God of Israel with her. 
But then, God can use a donkey to speak. God can use a very unwilling vessel like Naomi and use her to win a soul. And that's amazing. That, that's God. That's, that's a sovereign God that we don't understand. And what was Ruth's response to uh, her Naomi entreating her to go back? Naomi, uh, Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death do part thee and me. More than 3,000 years ago, a young woman, a young Gentile woman, spoke some immortal words of love and surrender and commitment that has gone the world over. Those are familiar words everywhere. Everywhere those words are familiar. Well, not everywhere, but you know what I mean. It's gone the world over. We were down south helping clean up. After a hurricane, Hurricane Hugo in eight and nineteen, yeah, not eighteen, nineteen eighty-nine, Hurricane Hugo came in across South Carolina with 140 miles an hour winds and flattened those pine forests and did a lot of damage. And um, one of the pictures we saw somewhere was a electric truck. They got electric trucks from all over the country to help clean up the damage. And there was a sticker on there that said, "Where." Hugo, I go. The name of Hurricane was Hugo. Because it's known. These words are known. I wonder if we can grasp the impact the spirit of these words have had in the world since they were uttered. Could we say these words have had more impact and Alexander the Great with his military campaigns? Or um, Napoleon or some of those other great leaders? That these words may have had more impact than those great men? These words which can fit in almost any wedding ever since that time? Ruth's passionate burst of tenderness is immortal. And uh, I think I found this somewhere. I'm going to read it. How many hearts since Ruth spoke her vow have found in it the words that fitted their love best? How often had they been repeated by quivering lips and heard as music by loving ears? How solemn and even awful is that perennial freshness of words that came hot and broken by tears from lips that long ago have moldered into dust. It's the words of love and commitment that is unsurpassed. 
when Ruth uttered those words, she was doing two things. She was both throwing herself onto Naomi, and she was also claiming Naomi as her own. It's a two-way street. It's a it's one of love and commitment to you, and it's also you are going to be mine. It's a two-way of commitment. Loyalty and love are expressed. There's four, four, I like to just go over four elements that were expressed in these words here. And these elements will work in any kind of relationship that you can have. Whether it's marriage or friendship or in churches. They are necessary for any close relationship to be close and enduring. And Naomi did all four. Ruth did all four to Naomi. Number one is the common place. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. An element, a key element for friendship is to be there. Now, I know in today's environment, with the communication and everything, that breaks down a little bit. This point breaks down a little bit. In that environment, you were not close to someone unless you were in proximity to them because that's all it was. So Ruth would remain faithful with Naomi and be a present comfort by her side. So number one is a common place. Number two is a common people. Thy people shall be my people. That means forsaking the past and the people of the past to adopt a new people and a new culture and a new lifestyle. A key element of friendship is having a common people of the one that you love. Number three is a common theology. Ruth said to Naomi, thy God shall be my God. All her paganism would be set aside so she could worship Naomi's God. Any relationship, no, I'm sorry. This is true of any close relationship, especially marriage. A similar belief system is necessary for closeness. You think of in a marriage where you have a, a belief system where the husband and the wife do not have the same belief system. And friendships that don't go as well. And any, any environment that you can think of that's going to be close that needs to have a similar, similar belief system that is essential for enduring and peaceful long-term relationships. And then number four, a common destiny. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. There was no time limit on her loyalty. Resilience in relationships require loyalty. Why is that? I know loyalty can be taken in exchange of truth, and we're not talking about it. We're talking about loyalty to a relationship. Relationships will go through dark times. 
they will go through difficult times. And it looks like the easiest thing is to... Any relationship will hit hard hard times and none will endure without loyalty. Hard times come and the tests are severe. And that's when commitment and loyalty will triumph. Where you die, I will die. So you have a common place, common people, common theology, and a common destiny. Ruth is giving words of commitment. But they're also words of forsaken. We know that to commit to something and to one person means a complete and for forsaking of something else to do that. And that's what Ruth was doing. She was putting the gods of Moab behind of, um, what they have their names, Chemosh and some other gods that they had and her old friends, and her old loves, and her old habits. Ruth demonstrates that we must give up. In order to truly follow the Lord, we must give up what is in our past. That was not right. I got, I'm going to do a little bit of reading here. I got this called The Witness. And it talks about commitment. I'm going to give a disclaimer before I read this. It's a fairly long reading here. I'm going to give a disclaimer. It's really strong. You will not believe it every point, uh, agree with it at every point. It will step on your toes. Be assured of that. But it's making a point that there are only two ways. There is the way of the Lord, and then there is the other way, like when Jesus said there's the broad way and a narrow way. And the question is, can we see the difference between the broad way and the narrow way? That's the question. Ruth saw the difference. Her commitment was really clear. And the question is, can we see the difference? Jesus and the Didache states that there are a great difference between the two ways. But it seems that we Anabaptists, with our easy life, as the indulged and petted lapdogs of America, the tourist attractions, the dependable tradesmen, the good cooks and quilters, have forgotten what was once a crystal clear difference. The difference between the two ways was once as clear as the difference between life and death. It was stark and plain to Michael Sattler in the harsh glare of a bonfire in Rottenburg, Germany in May of 1527. The same year, it was clear to Felix Mons, as clear as the cold Swiss waters of the Limat River in Zurich. It was clear to thousands of others, both before and after these men, who gave their lives rather than smudge the distinction. It was once the stark, harsh difference between who was burning people and who was being burned, who was beheading, and who was being beheaded, who was drowning, and who was drowned. While that stark clarity has certainly been preserved in many places in the world, in my world and among my people who are conservative Anabaptists, the water has been muddied by popularity and acculturation. 
Now here's the application. The descendants of those who once tried to stamp out our ascent, our ascent, ascent, ancestors, that's it. I couldn't get the, <laughs> the ones, the descendants of those who once tried to stamp out our ancestors with fire, water, and the sword, they have now turned their multi-dollar, their million-dollar smiles on us. And they have invited us to dine at their table. And we have pulled up a chair and we have dined. We have dined on their books and music and blogs. We have dined on their seminars and workshops. We have dined on revival meetings and altar calls and a Romans road, road and a sinner's prayer. We have dined on grace as mercy and faith as assent. We had dined on dispensationalism, pre-tribulational rapture, and escapist Christianity. We had dined on take back America creationism. We had dined on Abeka and George Washington. We had dined on Sarah Palin and the Bush family, World Magazine, Fox News, Philip Yancey, Michael Pearl, David Ramsey, and Zig Ziglar. Southern Gospel Music and CCM, The Pioneer Woman, The 1,000 Gifts, and Trim Healthy Mama. We had dined on technology and entertainment and recreation and industry, the iPhone, Six Flags, Mossy Oaks, and Peterbilt. We had dined on selfies and Instagram and Facebook. We had dined on five-day cruises and capitalism and the American dream. And gradually... What was once clearly the two ways has become more accurately described as the two-way, a distortion that sounds vaguely biblical but has no objective meaning or application. That is, in fact, a meaningless combination of words. Having lost a clear understanding of the narrow-way worldview, we have unconsciously bought into the broad-way worldview Instead, while still holding to narrow way terminology. And there's some more, but I think I'll stop there. That is pointed. (laughs) I don't know if you agree with it or not. But I think it may have more of truth in it than we are wanting to admit. Maybe his analysis is too biting, but I think we do not do well to ignore it. Our forefathers could have gone to the village church, the state church, where they preached verse by verse through the Bible, like I'm doing. And they had good preachers, like I'm not. And they had educated ones and all that. They had all that. And they could have done that. They had good sermons by trained preachers, popular teachers. And they could have avoided the ostracizing and the persecution that came from departing from them and maintaining a clear stand on the word. They could have done that. But the dedication to the Lord Jesus and the gospel compelled them, 
like Ruth, to reject the descendants of Lot and come to the pure waters of God's covenant people. Whatever problems the Jews had when they came back to the Jews, the Jews had a lot of problems. But whatever problems they had, it was a whole lot better than whatever Moab had. And it was the people God had chosen to bless. They were still the covenant people. Ruth 18, and when she saw Naomi, that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they came to Bethlehem that the city was moved about them and they said, Is this Naomi? Were they glad for them to come back? Were they friendly? I don't know. It does seem like they were astounded. They went away, young, fresh, hopeful, came back, weary, worn, and lonely. They said, is this really Naomi? Now, I don't want to, no pun intended here, but the they said is in the feminine. It means the lady started talking. <laughs> no pun intended, okay? But that's really what it means. They said, is this really Naomi? It was the, village, uh, the women in the village that buzzed around the strangers as they came in. And Ruth said, call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? <coughs> Naomi means pleasant. And she says the word, my name, pleasant, is a satire to my situation. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mar, which means bitter. And that is natural. She came back to the place of her childhood, back to the place where her, she grew up, where she got married, where they had their young life, and all those memories are there. She came back to it, but only memories, very sad memories. I went out full. I came home empty. Now, like our memories, our memories sometimes are a little cruel to us. Because she said, we went out full. Well, they went out seeking for bread. It wasn't as good as what she made it sound here. Our memories seem to pick up some of those good things that we had. We forget some of the bad things. But she does remember that they went out as a foursome and their three graves in Moab that she remembered. And so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of the wheat harvest. They came in the beginning of the barley harvest. I said wheat, I meant barley. Barley harvest. That sets the stage for the next part of the story. We have the background. Why is there a Gentile woman in Bethlehem that became the ancestor of David, which became the ancestor of Christ. How did this woman get in here? And so you have a setting that brings them. It's interesting that 
this first chapter is a period of 10 years. The next chapter, except for the last verse, is one day in the event. It really zooms in now to that event. So, the story of, it's God's story. What do we learn from here? I just have five points just to bring everything up. I don't have a real good conclusion, but I want to get a little bit of conclusion. Number one, questionable compromise nearly always ends, I'm sorry, nearly always leads to serious compromise. Number two, we can choose what we do, but we cannot choose the consequences. Number three, the compromise can be reversed when we rise up to go back, but the consequences remain. Number four, true faith is one of full love and commitment and forsaking all. And number five, coming back is not the end. It is only the beginning of a continued journey with God. So that's the first chapter of Ruth, what we can learn from it. May the Lord give us wisdom how to, how to apply that in our own time and day. So may the Lord bless you.